This morning we're going to be in Luke 13, um, 10 through 21. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in it. And he again said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. I don't know where the Lord has you this morning, um, but this I do know, that wherever you are, uh, he has something to say to you through this passage. You might be in a place this morning where you're filled with doubt. As you're walking through this life, um, as you're living your life as a Christian, perhaps your, your heart is filled with doubt. Are the things that I'm laying my eternity on and the things that I'm making my life oriented around, namely Jesus and his reign, is it all really true? Or maybe you're not doubting, but it's just become very difficult. I don't know what sort of circumstances you might be walking through, but following Jesus for you might have become very difficult, and you're wondering, is it worth it? Is it worth it for me to continue representing Jesus? Is it, is it worth it for me to continue to turn away from sin and these desires that I'm riddled with? Maybe you're going through some sort of pain, like the woman in this passage who is experiencing some sort of disability or weakness or illness, maybe that's where you're at. And you feel yourself beaten down and you, you don't see light at the end of the tunnel. Well, I don't know if, you, if any of those portraits explains you, but I know that this passage is meant for us as Christians and for those who put our trust in the Word of God to give us hope. To, to help us to see that there is light ahead. To help us to see what the reign of Jesus is really like. And I want you to be able to see that from God's word today. So before we jump into this passage and to see those things, let's just remember the context of what we've been walking through in the book of Luke. You remember starting back in chapter 9, we started this journey along with Jesus and his disciples, headed up to Jerusalem. And we know what's waiting for him there. Last week, as we were making that journey up, Jared showed us uh, the passage um, that showed us the reality of Jesus' future coming reign and how that should affect our lives. And the important thing for us today is to not think that today's passage is somehow disconnected with last week. Instead, it's just further filling in that picture of what Jesus' reign looks like and how our lives should be lived in response to it. So today, we're going to see further details about Jesus' reign, and we're going to see that the same response that we were asked to, to live up to last week is the same basic response we're being called to this week. So you'll notice both on the title of uh, the sermon, and you'll also notice in your entire outline, there's a particular phrase repeated over and over and over. What is that phrase? The reign of Jesus. I saw you mouth it, but no one wanted to say it. The reign of Jesus. Again and again and again. Why is that there? Why, why did I choose the phrase, the reign of Jesus? We didn't necessarily see that as we read through our passage, so where did I get it? 
Essentially, what I've done is just substituted the phrase kingdom of God for the reign of Jesus. Because I don't know about you, but the kingdom of God for me can at times feel abstract and a little bit distant. It's difficult to kind of get my hands on what the kingdom of God is. But I think a helpful substitute in this particular situation is just to say the reign of Jesus. So why would I say that this passage is is about the reign of Jesus or about the kingdom of God? Well, let me show you a few things here. What we're seeing in, in verses 10 through 17 as Jesus, uh, as Jesus heals this woman who's afflicted by a disabling spirit, who unbinds her, who's bound by Satan, what we see Jesus doing is undoing Satan's works. And whenever we see Jesus undoing Satan's works, maybe in earlier passages in the book of Luke, we've seen him cast out many demons. What's happening as Jesus comes in and he does the spiritual work of sending demons away? What is he doing? He's coming into enemy territory and he's setting up his kingdom. He's beginning to show this is what it looks like when I reign and when I rule. Wherever I reign and over whomever I rule, this is what it looks like. Evil spirits, demons, demonic possession will be sent far out. The enemy will be done away with. Look back at chapter 11, verse 20, really quick. Just in case you're not sure what I just said is true, look back. Chapter 11, verse 20. We had this passage that Mike preached just a few weeks ago. There was the question about, uh, is Jesus casting out demons by God's power or by the power of Satan or the power of Beelzebul? And here's how Jesus answers that question in verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus says, if it's true that by the finger of God or by the power of God, I cast out demons, then you can be sure of one thing. The kingdom of God is upon you. It's present. And so as you turn back to Luke chapter 13, we're seeing a woman freed from the power of Satan. And so what can we conclude from chapter 11 verse 20 is happening here? Jesus is setting up shop. He's setting up his kingdom. And so that's what this passage is all about. Jesus is setting up his reign and rule. He's setting up his kingdom. Why else would we say this this passage is ultimately about the kingdom of God? Well, it's pretty obvious. You look at verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And then look again at verse 20. And he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? If you're not convinced yet that this whole passage is about the kingdom of God or the rule of Jesus, then look at just what we talked about before, meaning last week. Jared showed us that the whole passage we looked at last week was ultimately about the reign of Jesus that's coming. Okay, if you're still not convinced, I've got one more piece of evidence. This is ultimately all about the reign of Jesus. What comes after this passage? If you look you'll see there's, there's people questioning. They're asking, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus begins to talk about, in verse 24, strive to enter. Strive to enter what? Enter the kingdom. And so clearly, as we look at all of that evidence, it's clear that this passage today is ultimately about the kingdom of God, or if we're going to use a shorthand phrase that I'm looking at today, the reign of Jesus. So we want to see something about the coming reign of Jesus, otherwise known as the kingdom of God. So one more thing, just before we jump into our passage, we need to see what the, just get our our minds set on the setting today. So look at verse 10. This is the first verse of our passage. Verse 10 says this, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So this is helpful. We just need to take a step back for a second and understand what forms the setting of everything that happens today. As Jesus teaches and he does this miracle, where are we? Well, picture a synagogue. A synagogue is a place where first century Jews would come for worship and prayer and teaching. We see Jesus enter synagogues. We see Paul enter synagogues. Imagine a room with no chairs. Much smaller than this. Everyone's just seated on the floor together in one big group. Perhaps you've seen this in churches overseas, if you've ever been in foreign contexts. And the only people who are seated 
are, are people who are the dignitaries or the important people, and they're seated around the room on benches. So there's benches pushed up against the wall, and everybody else is seated in one place in the middle of the room. So, so we're in a, a synagogue setting. People have gathered together, but what's the word, as you read that verse, that really stands out? Sabbath. If you've been reading the book of Luke, and if you've been paying attention to the ministry of Jesus, you know that when you read that word Sabbath, some alarms began to go off, right? Trouble. Because as we, we, we see in the ministry of Jesus, the Sabbath and, and, and all that's required of the Jewish people on the Sabbath day, Jesus and the, the leaders of that day weren't necessarily seeing eye to eye on what was most important to God about the Sabbath day. So you know what the Sabbath is, right? Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, when God had created everything, what did he do on the seventh day? He rested. And then whenever he formed a people for himself as he rescued Israel out of Egypt and he took them to a mountain and he proclaimed to them the law of God, what was one of the ten most important laws that he gave his people to set them apart as his? Keep the Sabbath day holy. Do no work on the Sabbath day. Well, we go on a little bit further in the book of Exodus, and it's reiterated again in Exodus 35. How important is keeping the Sabbath? Well, it's this important. In Exodus 35, Moses is commanded by the Lord to, to tell all of Israel that it is a capital offense. It is worthy of death to work on the Sabbath. So, uh, it's an important question then. What, what constitutes work? How, how should we understand work? Well, what is going to get me killed if I do that on the Sabbath day? Well, that's the question that there was a lot of disagreement about, as you can tell. If we were to look at Numbers 15, we, we can tell that this is an important command and that it was taken seriously by Israel. Does anybody remember what happened in Numbers 15? It was one of the few examples we have of capital punishment, of execution being, being taken uh, upon an offender of the Sabbath. A man goes out and he gathers sticks. He gathers wood for a fire on the Sabbath day. People witness it and see him doing that. They bring him to Moses. No one's exactly sure what to do. Moses asks the Lord, Lord, what, what do we do? The Lord says, have the people take him outside of the camp and stone him. So clearly, the Sabbath is important to God. Clearly, it was a very significant law that, we not work, that, that the people of Israel not work on the Sabbath day. And so as we get to verse 10, and as we see this disagreement and conflict that arises over the Sabbath, we shouldn't minimize and act like the scribes or Pharisees are silly for caring about the Sabbath. Does that make sense? We shouldn't come to passages when they have conflict over this and say, well, those legalists, they don't, there's no reason to be so concerned about keeping the law. Actually, they're not crazy to be trying to figure out what God was expecting. But the conclusions they came to about the heart of God and the intent of this law was totally mixed up. And we'll see why later. But suffice to know, the Sabbath is important for us to understand as we enter this passage that it was commanded by God and it was important to him that the, the people of Israel not work on the Sabbath day. So we've set the, we've set the stage, we've set the context, but as before we jump into this passage, what's the point of all this? Like, what is this passage supposed to do in us? Well, I think the original readers of this passage and even the disciples and the crowds, what's supposed to happen is they receive Jesus' teaching in the synagogue that day. What's supposed to happen is they see this woman healed of her afflictions. Well, they're supposed to come to a couple of conclusions. They're supposed to come to the conclusion that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath and he's Lord over Satan. And they're supposed to respond to his reign and rule, to him as Lord, with repentance and joyful submission to him. So, as we look at this passage, and as, we, as you hear this sermon today, what is God going to do among us? What is the purpose, what is the aim of this sermon today? 
It's that we would behold the awesome reign of Jesus. We would see him as Lord over the Sabbath and Lord over Satan. We would behold him in his glory. And then we would respond to him in joyful submission and joyful repentance. And so let me just just say, as you sit there in your seats today and you wrestle with whether or not you really want to tune in, I just want to encourage you to do so. Because if, if you don't listen today to this word, then you may miss an opportunity to hear from your Lord and have an opportunity to glory in Jesus. That opportunity is before you today. To have your affections for him stirred once again. To have them stirred afresh. If you don't listen today, you may miss an opportunity to have this clear sign. Perhaps you're not convinced. Perhaps you're doubting. Perhaps you're wondering about this reign of Jesus. Well, today we have in God's word a clear sign that Jesus will reign and that his reign will be glorious. Today, you can, if, if you refuse to listen to this word, you might find yourself under his punishment for all of time. If you refuse and reject him as Lord, you might find yourself outside of that kingdom and actually be finding yourself in opposition to Jesus as Lord. And so please, I beg you, listen to this word today. So what we're going to find as we jump into these verses is we're going to see Jesus reveal to us six characteristics of the reign of Jesus. Six characteristics of the reign of Jesus. So let's jump in with the first characteristic, and it's this. The reign of Jesus is initiated by Jesus himself. The reign of Jesus is initiated by Jesus himself. Look, at me, look with me again at, pass, at this passage in verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath... And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. So we're going to treat this passage a little bit unique today. We're going to find ourselves reading the passage and then jumping back into different portions of it. So keep the whole story in mind of what Jesus has done. But we'll stop there for just a moment, just after Jesus has freed this woman from her disability. Did you notice how involved was this woman in this whole situation? Like, look back. How involved was she? Says the the woman was there. So she showed up, and that's it. She did absolutely nothing. There's no coming to Jesus with a request. There's no laying herself down at his feet. There's no pleas. There's no, there's no crying. There's no tears. There's no prayers. But what we see is that after Luke says that this woman is present, Verse 12 says, Jesus saw her. That was all it took. Jesus saw her. And from seeing her and recognizing her condition, being able to see a woman suffering, Jesus doesn't wait for her to ask. He doesn't wait for her to be needy enough for help. He doesn't wait for her to be contrite or to come begging. Jesus sees her, and in verse 12, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. I just want us to step back for a moment and see whose initiative was this miracle from. Who took the initiative? Who took that first step? Who closed the gap? It was Jesus. He sees her, and he goes to her. He sees her, and he calls her. This isn't a difficult thing to observe, but I just want us to revel in that for a minute. minute. Because that's a spiritual truth for all of us to recognize. We were like this woman, and perhaps some of you in this day are like this woman. Maybe you don't have the particular disability that she had, but all of us were in this state of spiritual neediness, 
of being unable to do anything about our condition. Going to and fro, looking to him and to her, looking to this help and that help, but finding no help. Crying, tears, prayers for many years. 18 long years. The woman doesn't say a word, but Jesus calls her out. And do you remember when Jesus did that for you? When Jesus saw you in your sin and in your state of need, do you remember when you first heard His voice? Do you remember when His Spirit began to urge you to come to Him? Do you remember when He was calling you to Himself? Do you remember your first resistance to Him? The way you pushed Him away? The way you rejected? But how He kept on pursuing you? The way He kept on initiating a relationship with you? I mean, just think about it. Titus 3, verses 3 through 7, it says that He saved us. It was according to His mercy. It was by the washing of regeneration and renewal by His Holy Spirit. Everything that Jesus has done to bring us to Himself, it's always been at His initiative. You think about it, He left heaven. It wasn't because you were crying out. It wasn't because you were lovely. It wasn't because you made yourself lovable enough and you earned his eye. No, it was in a state of utter helplessness, in a state of utter rebellion. And Jesus left all the glories of heaven and he came down and pursued you. The Father looked at us in His mercy and He he said, what are these people going to do for themselves? How will they rescue themselves? And He knew there's no way. But from before the foundation of the world, it was His plan to come and do what we were unable to do. He took the initiative to set up His kingdom and to set up His reign over your life and over mine. It reminds me of an illustration that many use and that's of adoption. If anyone has has thought much about adoption, maybe you've participated in adoption or foster care. What role does the child have in adoption or foster care? Do they do the organizing? Do they they put something up on a, a, a board somewhere saying that they need help? Do they go out looking for possible suitors? Do they clean up their act and clean up their lives and make themselves lovable? It's totally at the initiative of the parent. Coming and looking and saying, you need help. You can't parent yourself. You can't help yourself. I'm going to come and bring you into my family. That's what Jesus has done for us. That's what Jesus did for this woman. Let's look here at this next characteristic of the reign of Jesus. We'll see that the reign of Jesus is driven by compassion. The reign of Jesus is driven by compassion. Let's read uh, these verses again, um, this time beginning in, in verse 14. We're going to see his compassion, especially in the way that he conflicts over the Sabbath with this, this ruler. Look at verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him." We see Jesus' compassion as he comes to battle over the Sabbath with the ruler of the synagogue. I think all of us are asking this question, did Jesus actually break the Sabbath? Was the ruler of the synagogue right? Was he right to be angry over the breaking of the Sabbath? Obviously, he's right to be concerned about it, but we see clearly his conclusion in verse 14. He does this passive-aggressive move after Jesus has already healed this woman. Passive-aggressively, he doesn't speak to Jesus. He doesn't speak to the woman directly, but he speaks to the whole crowd in the room. And he says, 
There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. It's clear what his conclusion is. It is not right. Perhaps he's not exactly sure it's not right, but he at least knows you're messing with the boundaries of the law here. So maybe you should just not mess with it at all. Come on the six other days and just leave the Sabbath alone. What's he doing in the midst of all of that? He's publicly shaming Jesus for the, the work that he's just performed, and he's causing this woman who's just been healed to feel guilty and ashamed of the fact that she's just been healed. He's shaming everyone for coming on the Sabbath day, breaking the law of God. Well, the question I think, yeah, we're, we're all asking, we're right to ask, was Jesus right to do what he did to heal on the Sabbath? Well, let me just remind you of a few other snapshots of, of times Jesus went to battle on healing in the Sabbath. Even in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 6, verses 6 through 11, he heals a man with a withered hand. And do you remember the, what, what, what were the people doing, the, the, the leaders? It's a Sabbath day again. The leaders are watching him closely to see what he's going to do. Jesus heals the man with the withered hand. And what does he press the issue on? When he, when he answers the question that they're not even asking, but they're asking in their hearts, what does he press the issue on? How does he know it's approved by God and pleasing to him to heal on the Sabbath? He asks them a question. Is it permissible to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? Is it permissible to save life or to kill on the Sabbath? Ironically, in their own hearts, they're plotting to do harm to Jesus. They're plotting to kill Jesus on the Sabbath day. And he puts it before them to say, is it right to do good? Is it right to, is it right to, to save life? Or is it right to do harm or to kill on the Sabbath day? Jesus presses the issue on compassion. We see him do the same thing in this passage, right? Look at these verses again. In verse 15, the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. How were they being hypocrites? It's all about this issue of compassion. You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? It's the same situation replayed again from the man with the withered hand. It's a Sabbath day. They're watching him closely. We saw a few chapters ago. They're watching him closely. And here Jesus is. He heals a woman. And afterward, he presses the issue of compassion. How is this uh, little illustration about an ox or a donkey ultimately about compassion? We'll look at it just for a second. Jesus compares an ox and a donkey versus a woman. And not just any woman. What do we know about this woman? She's a daughter of Abraham. He says, on the Sabbath day, you justify the fact that your animals need water or they become dehydrated and they'll die. It's, it's normal and justifiable to you to untie or to loose your ox or your donkey and lead them to water. You've justified that already. That's commonplace. You have no compassion for this woman who's a daughter of Abraham. And he goes on further. He says, your, your ox or your donkey, it's tied up, it's bound to a stall or to a manger. This woman, she's tied up and she's bound by Satan himself. Have you no compassion? He goes even further. He says, you're worried about this ox or this donkey? Because it's thirsty, because it's gone a few hours without water. This woman has gone 18 years bound by Satan, and you have no compassion. Jesus is pressing the issue on compassion. And we see one more story. I don't want to ruin whoever is, is uh, preaching chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. But we're also going to see uh, in that passage another situation where Jesus heals a man with dropsy. Uh, this is someone who has significant body swelling. 
Same situation. Sabbath day. Watching him closely to see what he's going to do. Heals the man. And then what does he press the issue on? He says, if you have a son or an ox that's fallen into a well, will you not immediately go and work to pull him out? Jesus presses the issue on compassion. What Jesus does is he places this hypocrisy, this inconsistency in their life to say, look, you are compassionate toward oxes and donkeys. Oxen and donkeys. You're compassionate toward your sons who fall into a well. You have compassion in one situation, but you have this unfeeling stubbornness toward this woman. That's hypocrisy. Jesus is essentially saying, as Lord of the Sabbath, he's already told us that he is Lord of the Sabbath back in Luke chapter 6. As Lord of the Sabbath, I'm I'm going to interpret the law, the intent of God for you. God is pleased when compassion is shown on the Sabbath. When someone is saved on the Sabbath. When someone is rescued on the Sabbath. The intent of the, the, the Sabbath was for people to rest and to worship. If people are suffering on the Sabbath day, is it not right to serve them? Is it not right to show compassion? Is it not right to help them? And so in this way, Jesus makes clear, no, he didn't break the law. He was fulfilling the intent of God, giving people suffering, giving them rest on the Sabbath. And so we see here very clearly in these verses The reign of Jesus is driven by his compassion. Let's see the next characteristic of the reign of Jesus, and we'll see it. uh, Looking especially in verses 11 and 13 and 16, the reign of Jesus frees from bondage by Satan. The reign of Jesus frees from bondage by Satan. We see this in a couple of different places. Look at, at verse 11. When this woman is first revealed to us, what do we learn about her? And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. You read that at first, you think that's a bit curious. Why does it say disabling spirit? You know, you would think just a disability. Uh, That word disabling, it essentially means weakness or illness. But he connects a spirit with this disability that she has. And so at first you think this is kind of odd, this kind of curious way to say that. And then it it continues to be a bit strange. Look at verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. That's strange as well, right? You wouldn't really connect a disability with being freed. That word freed means like to let something loose or to to, uh, unleash something. You wouldn't usually say that about someone suffering from a disability. So the whole situation is just seeing a bit curious. And then Jesus really, he, he opens up the hood to the spiritual realm for us. He helps us see what we wouldn't be able to see or perceive with our physical eyes. He opens it up for us in verse 15. He said, the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? Verse 16, And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Jesus opens up the hood for us to see into the spiritual realm. He shows us this is not just about a physical disability. There's something spiritual causing this disability. There's something spiritual behind that you're unable to see. This woman's biggest problem isn't just that she's hunched over and can't straighten herself out. It's not just that in in our own uh, scientific terms today that she has kyphosis or commonly known as hunchback. It's not, that's not her ultimate problem. Her ultimate spiritual problem is that she is being bound by Satan. Jesus opens that up for us to realize that. This woman has been suffering under Satan's binding now for 18 years. The illustration Jesus uses for it is, you know, what he says to the hypocrites. She's like 
an ox or a donkey that's bound to a stall, that's thirsty and needs water. She needs to be unleashed and loosed and let, let go to water. But there's no one to un, unleash her. There's no one to untie it. There's no one there to lead her to water. This woman is, is suffering greatly. I'll just address the elephant in the room that many of us, when we read passages of like this, we feel. We think to ourselves, okay, so the Bible speaks about these sort of things, these disabilities like this, and speaks about it in spiritual terms, but we've, we've wised up since then, haven't we? Like, we've got science now, so like, they put spiritual terms on it back then because they didn't understand what was going on behind the scenes. I think one thing that we just all have to recognize, if we believe this to be the word of God, we don't have to excuse God for what he said. There are certain things that, yes, we can, we can say how something works scientifically. We can say what. We can put names on it. But at the end of the day, we're blinded to spiritual realities. At the end of the day, we don't have the full picture unless somebody opens up the hood for us. We don't need to apologize for God here. We don't need to explain it away. We need to take God at his word. He says that this physical thing that they're seeing with this woman hunched over, Jesus himself says there's a spiritual reality going on there. And for this woman in particular, this was a, a physical sign, a physical representation of a spiritual reality. This woman was bound by Satan. Jesus did this when he came. He's setting up his reign and his kingdom. As he frees her and looses her from Satan's grip, this is something that those of us who have trusted in Christ, this is the same spiritual situation that Jesus has freed all of us from. All of us. You think about some passages like Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4 says that we were enslaved to the principles of this world. Ephesians chapter 2 says that all of mankind follow the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that, of, that is at work in the sons of disobedience. There are spiritual things going on that we're unaware of. Satan is at work in this place. But 1 John 3.8 tells us what we see here represented in this story. Just in case you think maybe this is just uh, something that was once described, once happened, but it's not really true for all of us, listen to, to 1 John 3.8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. When Jesus came and he comes healing and sending spirits away and healing disabilities, what he's doing is showing when I'm in charge, this is what my reign looks like. There's no disabilities. There's no Satan binding. There's no power here. I'm Lord over Satan. I'm Lord over sickness. I'm in charge here. And so while some disabilities remain, while Satan's still at work in the world around us, we know who's ultimately in charge and who's final, who gets the final word. And we know what the end is going to be like when Jesus' reign is full. All of our suffering, all of our illnesses, all of our weaknesses, all of these things will be finally and fully put away. And we see it just in a foretaste with this woman. The reign of Jesus frees us from bondage by Satan. Let's look at the fourth characteristic of Jesus's reign. We'll see it in verses 13 and 14 and 17. The reign of Jesus divides people. The reign of Jesus divides people. Look at verse 13. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight. And she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people. Did you see what happened there? As Jesus performs this work, he lays his hand on the woman immediately. His work is done. There's no, there's no resistance by Satan. He can't, even, he can't even put up a fight. It's immediately done. And then what happens? 
there's a division. And this is what we see uh, throughout the book of Acts. This is what we see throughout the rest of the scriptures. When Jesus' word, when Jesus' person is put on display, dividing begins. And why is that? The reason that happens is because people are settling into their positions. Judgment day is coming soon. And people are setting up in their positions when Jesus is going to ultimately separate and divide. How did we see that in this passage? The woman begins to glorify God for for what just happened to her. She worships. She rejoices. She submits to Jesus' lordship, it seems. But the ruler of the synagogue, the one who should have recognized that the kingdom was was here, the, the ruler of the kingdom was present, He's indignant. He's mad. He's angry. He's going to passively, aggressively turn people away from Jesus and accuse him of breaking God's law. Division happens right there. We see it again in this passage. Look at verse 17. As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. We see adversaries ashamed. We see the people rejoicing at the glorious things being done by him. This is clear to us, and it should be no surprise. We see what we see happening, what Jesus promised. Look back with me at chapter 12. So you probably don't even need to turn your page. Maybe some of you do. Look at back at chapter 12, verse 51. Do you think that I've come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house there will be divided five, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. What is Jesus saying? When Jesus shows up, when the gospel's proclaimed, when the truth of his coming and his judgment and his reign now and his reign to come, when that's put on display, division happens. People will, people are dividing, and the divide comes on one thing, over one thing. It's over the person of Jesus himself. We see this happen every day, don't we? I won't name names, but in our world, we see uh, politicians being polarizing. You know, do you just bring up a name of a, a famous politician at any point in history, and you've got division that happens? The same thing and to a much greater degree, Jesus. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. Bring him up and people immediately begin to divide. And it's people are setting up for the judgment. They're making clear based on your decision about Jesus, what you decide him to be. Is he Lord or is he just some teacher who came? Was he true, truly God, truly man coming to set up his reign and rule? Or was he a deceived liar and lunatic? All of us have to make that decision. And over Jesus and what we do with him, we will be judged. And every man, woman, and child will be divided over him. So let's go on. The the fifth characteristic we see of Jesus's reign is this. The reign of Jesus grows large and welcomes outsiders. The reign of Jesus grows large and welcomes outsiders. Look at verse 18 and 19. It seems like Jesus is in still the same setting in the same synagogue. There's no indication that he's moved. And so now he's speaking about his reign and his rule, his kingdom. He tells us something about what it's like. Look at verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? Verse 19, this is what it's like. It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. So I think it's clear to us what Jesus is trying to get across. Whenever you're reading parables, you don't need to dig into every fine detail. Walk away with the fullness of it. Walk away with the main point. And what what is he showing us? Look, you've got this little tiny mustard seed. And then you look at the end result. What do you have? A very large tree. 
I don't know about you, but something happened between those two. Something happened. And, and what is it that Jesus wants to point out? It's the fact that between this very small seed and this large tree, growth took place. And what he's trying to show us is that the kingdom of God is going to grow. Why is that encouraging? It's encouraging because right now you've got Jesus in a synagogue being rejected and dividing just this one room in front of him, let alone the entire world. But Jesus assures his disciples and he assures us this kingdom's going to grow. It's not this insignificant kingdom that's going to remain just a couple dozen people until Jesus comes back. There's not 144,000 that the number is just going to fill and that's all. No, this is going to be a big kingdom. It's going to grow and expand. This is encouraging for us. Like as we wrestle with doubt and we, we, we struggle to see the light at the end of the tunnel, a promise like this to know this little insignificant kingdom Maybe you're discouraged, you walk into a, a, a cafeteria like this, and you're like, is this really significant what we're doing here? Yes, it is. This kingdom that we're a part of, this ruler who's reigning over your life and over mine, he has a large kingdom that is under his reign and rule. It's going to continue to grow and expand. It, yes, it has an insignificant beginning. This Jesus walking around, this, this, this teacher going and being rejected everywhere he goes, going up to Jerusalem to be rejected and ashamed and killed, it seems pretty insignificant. But you watch what happens. It has a glorious end. It starts here with Jesus and his disciples, and it grows into many, many nations. We see in Revelation, it begins to incorporate. In the end, it incorporates every tribe and nation and tongue, countless thousands upon thousands, myriads upon myriads, and we're a part of that. We're not a part of something insignificant. We're a part of something great. It may seem small now, but we will see in the end that it's great. We love rags to riches stories, right? That's what this country is built off of. This insignificant little man who comes from a podunk town, he ends up being something great, something famous. That's Jesus. Coming, being understood of this man from Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, just a carpenter. What, what, is this, what is this man? He ends up being Lord of Lords and King of Kings. The greatest rags to riches story ever told. If you're not sure uh, just where this idea of welcoming outsiders come, it comes from this idea of the birds of the air made nests in its branches. You've got this man sowing a seed in the garden. He's cultivating this, this place, this garden. It's, it's a picture of what God's been doing with uh, with his people, with his covenant people. But then you notice what happens. Who gets in on the blessings of this tree and this growing and expanding kingdom? Even birds of the air get to come and enjoy it. People who are outsiders get to come in. It's a picture of the nations being brought in and getting to take part. Let's look at our final characteristic then. The reign of Jesus expands unnoticed. The reign of Jesus expands unnoticed. Look at verse 20. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And so again, very similar. We have something small, this leaven. And what does the woman do with it? She hides it. She, she tucks it away in the dough. And then what happens? This hidden ingredient, this little bit of, of leaven, what ends up happening? It ends up slowly, unnoticeably working its way through the entire batch of dough until the entire thing expands and grows and is entirely, and entirely leavened. And so you notice this unnoticed, hidden little ingredient moves to something that is obvious and unmistakable and inevitable. It was inevitable. The moment that woman tucked that little leaven away, it was inevitable that it was going to work its way through that entire dough. We see the expansion of the kingdom. 
Look, Jesus didn't come in his first coming with a hostile takeover. That's what everybody was hoping for. They're hoping it was going to come in some observable, visible, noticeable way. But he came quietly. He came silently, almost unnoticed. But there's a day coming when it's not going to be unnoticeable. There's a day coming that's going to be obvious, unmistakable, and inevitable. That day is coming when Jesus' reign won't be localized among a little group of disciples, not even localized in this room. It's going to cover the whole earth. His reign will be universal. All of his enemies will be put aside. Satan and death and sin will be eradicated entirely. Death will be no more. Jesus' reign will be universal. It looks small now. It's hidden from the world. But one day, no one will be able to ignore it. You've seen this happen before, right? You have a little bit of dough And then you come back a few hours later and it's massive. And you're like, wow, I wouldn't have noticed it if I just sat here watching. But when I compare the beginning and the end, it's like unmistakable. If we keep our eyes open, we see that happening around us. We see the kingdom expanding and expanding and including more and including more people laying their lives down and submitting to the reign of Jesus. One day we won't have to look very hard. It's going to be unmistakable. Uh, we, we look, um, if, you, if you want to see just some proof for this, turn over just a couple pages to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, the question that the Pharisees are asking is, when will the kingdom of God come? Chapter 17, verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. You can turn back to to chapter 13. It's the same idea. The, The kingdom is expanding right under your nose. If you were to look for it, you might miss it. But right under their nose, people were submitting their lives to Jesus. The Pharisees weren't able to see what was happening, but Jesus was setting up shop, reigning and ruling over those who who gave their hearts over to him. And so for us, we have to ask this question. Right now, are we growing discouraged? Are we doubting? Or maybe are we even rejecting the lordship of Jesus because it's hard to notice his reign and rule now? because we don't see it every day. We don't see it in the the things that are going on. It seems like there's bigger kings out there. There's bigger nations. There's bigger events, more important things going on. Are we being fooled by what we see with our eyes? Because right now, there is a spiritual reign going on. Right under our nose, in our very midst, there's a kingdom established. There are people submitting to a great king. One day, that spiritual reign that's invisible to us now, one day it's going to be very visible. One day the kingdom will come and it will be that day when we see Jesus face to face and everyone will bow the knee. But when we see him face to face, there's going to be no movement. There's no getting on the other side. What we do in this life, what we choose to believe about Jesus, who we give our lives to, who we bow the knee to, who gets to control what we say, what we do, who's in control of your life? Because on the day when this spiritual reign is made visible, there's no changing sides. Today's the day to make the choice. Who's king? Are you king? Are they king? Or is Jesus king of your life today? And I urge you, don't be fooled by what you see now because what you see later is going to be unmistakable and you will bow the knee whether you like it or not. And I pray you will submit today. And so we've seen six characteristics of the reign of Jesus today. We've seen that Jesus' reign is initiated by Jesus himself. We've seen that the reign of Jesus is driven by compassion. He frees us from bondage by Satan. He divides people. The reign of Jesus grows large and even welcomes outsiders. The reign of Jesus expands unnoticed. And so today we said that we had a couple of purposes that we were aiming for in this sermon. 
We said that we wanted to behold the awesome reign of Jesus. And I pray through these six characteristics you've seen, the reign of Jesus is glorious now and it will be even more glorious before we know it. But the question is, how have you responded? I want to encourage you to fear and maybe even to loathe the response of the ruler of the synagogue here. He should have been first in line. He should have seen the signs and known what was going on around him as Jesus performed this sign. But instead, he was, he's, indignation filled his heart. He walked away ashamed of himself for his lack of compassion. All the man had to do was say, I'm wrong. You're right. I misunderstood God's law. I missed God's heart and what he intends for the Sabbath. I misunderstood what he had in mind for his people. I'm wrong. You're right. I'm getting in line and I'm, I'm following you. But he didn't. He's ashamed of himself, but he doesn't turn around. He's been humbled, but not for long. He's just going to build his case in other ways and keep plotting in the darkness. And is that you? Have you found yourself butting up against the lordship of Christ, ashamed of yourself, ashamed of your sin? Do you feel like you're in bondage? Like, do you know that if you're making a practice of sin in your life, 1 John says, no one who practices sin and makes a practice of sin is born of God, but he's being, he's under the sway of Satan. Are you turning against his lordship? If you are, I pray, take the response up of this woman who, who was loosed from Satan's bondage, who was freed from 18 years of suffering. And Jesus has that extended to us. He has it extended. You can be freed of your bondage to Satan. That sin that's holding you and promising you death and who just keeps beating and battering you, you can be freed. If you humble yourself and admit your sin and turn, you have a willing, compassionate Savior who's willing to forgive you of all your sin. And then for those of us who have tasted, we're, we're responding like the people. We're rejoicing at all the glorious things that Christ has done for us then I encourage you to observe your life again and to say, is there anything in obstinate rebellion to my Lord? Is there anything that, I, that I'm holding over here outside the, the realm of his rule, but I need to bring it in and lay it down at his feet? Is there anything like that in your life? Turn it over to him. Don't rebel in your heart any longer and rejoice. Rejoice in the one who has freed you from bondage, who's brought you in to his family, who saved you from your sins. And for those of us who have tasted that goodness, I want to encourage one more thing to us. Welcome more into this kingdom. Bring more in. The, the kingdom's expanding. It's been let loose. When Jesus came and he started it, it's been expanding. That's why we're here in this room today. And so if you have family members and friends, if there are people in your life who are not submitting to the reign of Jesus but are in rebellion to him, keep on pressing on. And as you do that, as you keep reminding people of Jesus' compassion, of his love, and of his call, his initiative to bring them out of their sin, don't be surprised as you invite others into this kingdom if they don't see it. Don't get discouraged if they miss it. Don't be discouraged if they're rejecting his lordship because we have here in this passage people being divided over it and people missing the spiritual reign now. Keep going. Don't give up. Keep praying for your son or your daughter or your friend or your mom or your dad or your grandpa or your neighbor or your friend that you're sharing with. Don't give up. Don't grow discouraged. Don't grow weary. This kingdom is expanding even though we don't see it. Jesus is, Jesus is ruling, even if we might miss it. And all of us, let's work, let's worship, let's rejoice, let's share the gospel, because Jesus is coming soon. What's invisible now will be visible very soon. We will see him face to face. And let us push on through discouragement, push on through doubt, because that day is promised and it will come soon. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, today we've been encouraged because we see your initiative toward us.
You've seen us in our sin, and it was out of your mercy and compassion that you came to us and you pulled us out and saved us from our sins. Jesus, it encouraged us to, to remember that for those of us who have trusted in you, we've been freed from bondage. We thank you, Father, so much that we get to walk in freedom, no, no longer slaves of sin, but slaves to God. Father, we thank you so much that we're no longer on the wrong side of this division, but we're, we're on your team. We're submitted to your reign and rule, and we have great promises, a great inheritance awaiting us. And we thank you for these promises, Lord, that you are welcoming in the nations, that your kingdom is growing, it's been unleashed, and it will keep on growing. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that even if we get discouraged because we're not seeing obvious signs today, that you are expanding your kingdom, and one day it will be unmistakable. Lord, we pray that we would respond rightly to your word. We pray that there would be nothing that we would resist your Holy Spirit in, but that we would submit wholeheartedly to you and to him today. Lord, we give you our hearts and lives. We pray that your work would be accomplished in full. In Jesus' name, amen.